This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the fourth installment of the Winter 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. Our sponsor tonight is Logic Monitor. Logic Monitor is a SaaS-based performance monitoring platform for the enterprise. They offer IT monitoring on-premise, in the cloud, as well as in a hybrid format. Uh, they're also hiring aggressively, so if anyone's watching this online or anyone here in this room, you want to work for a growing uh, high-tech company that has investors like Bessemer, so it's kind of the best of all worlds. They have very strong investment base, um, but they also um, are growing aggressively, and you can make an impact. Essentially, if you, if you have remote servers, what Logic Monitor will do is they'll tell you when there's a problem with your server before your customers do. The last thing you want is all your customers telling you you have a problem. Logic Monitor will do that job for you. And we're very happy that they're here sponsoring tonight. We have with us tonight world champion poker player, speaker, author, philanthropist, Annie Duke. Annie has leveraged her expertise in the science of smart decision making to excel at pursuits as varied as championship poker publishing, and public speaking. Just this February, her new book came out, and it's really for general audiences. She's written other books that were for the poker audience, but this is her first book for the general audience. It's called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Highly recommend this book. It's, it, it, it will help you just with your personal decisions. It helps you identify biases that we're going to talk about during the interview, um, and obviously it helps you from a corporate standpoint. It helps you make better corporate and strategic decisions. It's fascinating because she's combining all of, that, all of those hours she's spent at the poker table um, making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions every, um, every hour over, over eight-hour stents. Um, and she combines it with her background in cognitive psychology. So she's a behavioral scientist who became a poker player who then decided to put it all in a book for us. So I highly recommend you checking out her book. Let's welcome Annie to our UC Santa Barbara stage. Joking that you were making me nervous, we kind of did. I, I don't know why. <laughs> so we had a really auspicious start. I mean, obviously we we, we've combined, we've corresponded quite a bit yeah. on email, but I see Annie on campus. I almost get her hit by a bike, and I almost broke her phone all within about two seconds. That's true, but and I, she still I didn't came get up here. hit by the bike, and my phone was not broken. Yes, so. and you still came up on stage with me. I'm hoping uh, yes. that I don't injure you. In any I would have. I would have come up. As, even if the bike hit me, as long as I wasn't injured. But if your phone had broken, you would I still would have come up. Oh, you would have? Yes. Okay. yes. Well, we appreciate that. So I want to start out, I know you grew up in a very cerebral academic family. Mm -hmm. What was the reaction? How did your parents react when you said, hey, mom, hey, dad, good news. I'm going to be a professional <laughs> poker player. Okay, well, I... I was really lucky because my brother had already taken mm. all the hope and dreams <laughs> out of them. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's true. You laugh. But so here's my brother's Her brother's a very accomplished poker, poker player. player. So here's what happened. My, my brother um, in high school got into uh, Columbia. Um, and he went off to New York, but he actually decided he was going to defer a year. He was very, very into chess. He loved mm. chess. Um, so he found a grandmaster that he was going to study chess with in New York um, for one year, and then he was going to go to Columbia. 
And while he was there, he started playing poker. And uh, just for fun, or did he? Well, kind kind of starting just for fun. I mean, the the thing. So all the games are all sort of intertwined, and you know, the people who did played chess and backgammon and poker, they they all sort of hung out with each other in New York. So right. he got sort of you know wrapped into poker, and initially he was really bad, and he actually had a sixty three hundred dollar um, college fund from my grandfather that he promptly lost. Ah. Yeah. But the good news is he, he figured out that he could get better. So this was his, actually, I'll tell you what his big revelation was that started him on his way. Um, this game that he started off playing in would run for 72 hours. Um, so it would start on Friday night, and it would end you know, sometime early Monday morning. Sounds painful. I know, and, and, but they would all play for the whole 72 hours. So my brother, when he first started playing, would play for the whole 72 hours. And one day it dawned on him, hold on a second, I could play for like 10 hours and then go sleep and then come back and play again and then go sleep and then come back and play again. So I could play three times where I'm fresh all three times against all of these people who have been playing for 72 hours with alcohol involved. Um, and he did that. And he actually, actually, the game ended up disbanding because he made so much money from just that wow. strategy. But he started studying. Why didn't they outlaw him? Well, you don't really... <laughs> I don't know. He gets up from the table. I would have said, "You're out." <laughs> no, <laughs> but so he through that he actually ended up falling in with this really amazing, accomplished group of poker players. So they were all very young and they were just mm, starting out. Mm. So they hadn't necessarily had the accomplishments yet, but included people like Eric Seidel, who is an amazing right. poker player, a guy named Dan Harrington, um, who's a world champion as well. Um, uh, just this incredible group. Jason Lester was another guy in the group. And like, just to give you an idea, Eric Seidel alone has made $38 million in tournament poker. So he fell in with a really good group. He started studying. Mm -hmm. um, after that initial, you know, I lost my college fund. Um, oh, and by the way, I'm not going to go to Columbia because <laughs> I'm really into this whole poker thing. Um, he ended up actually becoming really great. And by 23, had made the final table of the World Series of Poker. But so, see, that was early, though. So you tell mm -hmm. this audience that, and they're like, yeah, of course you can make money in poker. But he was pretty early in this thing. This was nobody, poker was not a thing. It right. was not on television. Right, right. It, like, so I come along at 10 years after he started playing. So my parents, that's why I said my parents had <laughs> already given up all hopes and dreams for their children at that point. No, but my brother had already shown them that you can actually make a living playing poker, which you wouldn't have known right. then because it didn't, it didn't sort of explode all over the television until right around 2003, 2004. Um, and this, my brother started playing in 1982. So th this was really way before it was a thing that people thought of as anything besides something that right. only a degenerate would do. Right, right. And then when I started playing, I declare, I started really 94 as a pro. Um, even then, you know, people would ask me what I did. And I would say, well, I'm a professional poker player. And they would, usually the next question would be, what does your husband do? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> and I'd, I'd be like, first of all, why is that relevant? Um, but second of all, my, my husband actually was a house husband. So, mm. it, you know, I mean, he did, he, he had some other stuff, but I was actually the mainly fi the financial support. Right. Um, amazing father, I just want to say that. Um, no, really. And... Um, <laughs> He really is. I'm very lucky to have him as a father of my children. So he, um, but anyway, they would say, what does your husband do? And I'd be like, well, no, you know, not that, I mean, he's, you know, he helps take care of the kids. 
And, um, and then they would ask me if I inherited money. Yeah, then they're really worried for you. It's like, right. oh, great. <laughs> oh, do, you're, you're just rich. You know? right, no, right. I have no trust fund. And then it would usually, a lot of times they would say, like, have you thought about Gambler, Gamblers Anonymous? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, literally, they just wouldn't believe that this was something you could make. They'd ask me if I was a dealer. Do you deal cards? No, oh. I play. <laughs> Anyway, so well, how, so Howard Hook got you started, mm-hmm. um, did, but you did have an affinity for the game, so you started playing, but for mainly for for financial reasons. So yeah. you didn't jump right to Vegas to start winning tournaments. You oh, started no, no, no. I Montana. Took a, yeah. and you really, you really learned the game. So I, unlike my brother, well, I mean, I got into Columbia, but unlike him, I actually went. <laughs> he did go many years later for like six months, but then he decided not. Anyway, I actually went, I graduated, <laughs> then I went to Penn, and I was uh, getting my PhD in cognitive mm-hmm. psychology at Penn, and right at the end, what happened was I was literally, like, I, I, the last year, I started having some stomach issues, mm. and um, right at the end, as I was going out for my job talks, actually, I got really sick, and I landed in the hospital for two weeks, so I had to Yikes. cancel my job, job, job talks. Um, uh, and then I needed to recuperate. So, you know, in academics, the, the market's seasonal. So right, I, it's right. not like I could just be like, oh, and by the way, now, now I'm, I'm going to come. Yeah. yeah. So I had to wait until the next season. And so it was during that time. I, I actually had a fellowship. I had a National Science Foundation fellowship when I was at school. Um, and then, oh, I don't have a fellowship anymore while I'm recuperating and I need money. So that, that's actually why I started playing was simply for, for the need of, you know. And help food. me with the connection to Montana. What was? So my... Ex-husband, the amazing father of my children. Right, right. Um, he his family lived in Montana, and he had a house there. So since I was Got recuperating, it. we thought, well, I'll just go to you know, we'll just go and yep. we'll hang out with his family, and right. w- you know, I can see doctors up there and sort of try to figure out what's wrong. So, but then it's like, oh, I need money. Um, and there was a poker game that was about a forty-minute drive from where we lived, and I had watched my brother play a lot. And I played a little bit recreationally because when I was in graduate school, my brother, by that time, who was successful, would fly me out for vacations. Uh-huh. And then I'd be really bored. And so he gave, he'd give me a little bit of money and send me to go play a small stakes game. So I, I played like once a year for a few years. But he said, why don't you go try to play in these games that are in Billings? And so mm-hmm. I did, mainly for mm-hmm. money. And um, so I was doing that kind of in the meantime until I went out on the job market and then you know, the meantime was 20 One years. One thing led to another, yeah. and now we're here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, never, I never made it back. I, I'll, I want to get back, and I will get back to your life in poker, but I want to talk about the book. So I had the, I had the fortune of seeing you speak about a year and a half ago, or a year ago, maybe. I think it was, about, I think it was right around this time, yeah. And you, you totally, you are a great storyteller. You guys are already oh, seeing that. Thanks. You caught me, right? I think it was kind of near really the beginning of your talk about the Pete Carroll anecdote and so which opens I, my book so then i pick up her book and it's like the first page um it's a great anecdote it's a great way to tell a bigger okay. story so uh you know for those for those that maybe don't remember we can just quickly go over it but but what i liked about it was it is a great anecdote and it i'll never ever gonna I'm, i've told that anecdote by the way about 10 times i'll never forget the underlying message because it was so wrapped in such a nice little package do you want to just maybe just quickly sure. now that I've teed So it up? I'm going to tell you the anecdote, and then I want, I want you to remind me to tell you what happened like three weeks ago, because it's very funny. Oh. It's in relation to that. Okay. Okay, so it's 2015, and the Seahawks are on the one-yard line of the Patriots. It's the Super Bowl, and you know that because the Patriots are in every Super Bowl. <laughs> 
There's 26 seconds left in the game. It's second down. The Seahawks have one timeout, and they trail by four. So um, how many of you remember this play? <laughs> this is a pretty famous play in football. So what happens? Everybody expects that Pete Carroll is going to call, uh, call a handoff. Right. Uh, he's going to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch is going to try to barrel through the um, uh, defensive line, you know, score. He doesn't get in. They call a timeout. They call a timeout, and then maybe he'll, you know, get another try at it, right? right? But Pete Carroll doesn't do that. He actually calls a pass play, and Russell Wilson passes the ball, and Malcolm Butler intercepts it in the, in the end zone, and it's a very sad day. <laughs> so... Uh, the headlines were not kind. Right, right, right. Let's put it that way. Um, it was not, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about whether it was a good play or a bad play or what the reasoning behind it was. Most of the discussion was about whether it was the worst play in Super Bowl mm. history or just the worst play in football history, period, ever. And, um, you know, and that was just sort of the declaration. Yeah. Like, yeah. Worst, you know, dumb. worst, dumb, he's an idiot, yep. he's the worst play, you know, worst call in Super Bowl history. Now, there were a couple of, outlying voices. Um, uh, for example, uh, Benjamin Morris from 538, there was also a writer from Slate, um, who said, no, actually, this actually wasn't such a bad play. Um, so I'll just very quickly, I'll tell you why it wasn't so bad. So they only had one timeout left. It's 26 seconds, and they're, you know, it's second down. So the only way to, if, if Marshawn Lynch fails to get into the end zone, on a running play, the only way to stop the clock is to burn the one timeout right, that they have. Right. Um, and enough time will have run off the clock that they'll only have one more play to run. So if you call the um, running play, you're committing yourself to two tries at the end zone. If you call the pass play um, and it's dropped, the clock naturally stops. Mm -hmm. And it will stop quickly enough that you can actually get those two running plays back. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really a key factor, is that when you call the pass play first, you can actually get into two more plays, so you get three tries at the end zone as opposed to two. Now, the question is, what are you giving up for that, right? Because that's really what the, you know, obviously, if, if the chances of an interception there are 50%, like, you wouldn't give that up in order to gain right. the extra chance at the end zone. Yep. Uh, but the... Actually, that season, in that situation, no ball had been intercepted. But historically, over mm. the last 15 years in football, the interception rate had been between 1% and 2%. So you're basically paying this, like, 1-ish percent interception rate for a third try yep. at the end zone, which actually doesn't sound so bad. Now, you, you, you know, we can argue about whether he should have done that or not, but I hope nobody in the room now thinks that that's the worst play in Super Bowl history. <laughs> um, because there's really actually good logic behind it. Now, separately, by the way, there's a guy named Mike Lombardi who has a book coming out in the fall who actually talks about this play as well, who talks about it from a, a, the formation that the Patriots mm -hmm. um, were in. And he says, given the formation that they saw, that was actually going to be run protection. So the pass play given that was pretty good. And Belichick uh, himself has uh, defended the play. I just want to say that. So, so the reason why I opened my book with this is because I asked people to do a very simple thought experiment. Right, so obviously the ball's intercepted, and it's just you know the worst play in Super Bowl history. So just everybody in the room for a second, I want you to imagine that Pete Carroll calls calls the pass play, and the ball's caught in the end zone. Brilliant. What do the headlines look like the next day? So, and you know that that's what, you know you know the headlines are going to be out Belichick, Belichick. You know, 
essentially. Like, you know, smartest play in Super Bowl history. So cagey, so tricky. Wow, he's so smart. So you know there's a problem because yeah. the quality of the decision should not be ruled by the quality of its outcome. Those two things are independent. But we know that the pundits in this particular case didn't. Now, the interesting thing is we don't need to run the thought experiment anymore because of the Philly special. So obviously, the, the Eagles, by the way, I'm from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, the, no cars were overturned at my house. <laughs> but at any rate. So, you know, obviously, Doug Peterson did something equally creative when they were, you know, again, right. they're, it's fourth down, and they're on the one-yard line, and, you know, they're up by three. So you think, oh, okay, we're just, they're just going to kick the field goal and, and go up by six to end the, the half. Right, right. And he calls the Philly special, and all of a sudden, Nick Foles is in the end zone and catches right. the ball. Right. Um, now, everybody called him brilliant there, and they actually said he outcoached Belichick. But you can imagine if the same thing had happened and it had been intercepted and then Philadelphia had gone on to lose the game, that he probably would have gotten the Pete Carroll treatment. So right. um, this is uh, the problem, this thing that happened, where the quality of the outcome is clearly determining how people are viewing the quality of the decision and they're not viewing those things as relatively independent. is called resulting in poker. Mm -hmm. um, in cognitive science, we call it outcome bias. But, um, and it's this saying, the result is how we determine it's a it's a shortcut mm -hmm. to get to decision quality and it's a humongous problem um it's going to be really hard for you to learn if you're a resulter if you're just looking at you know when things go poorly for people I, they're bad decision makers and when things go well it's a terrible thing to do as a leader as a manager you're going to crush innovation if you um result with your employees mm -hmm. Um, and the thing I want to say that's interesting is that Pete Carroll understood this because he was actually interviewed on the Today Show and they said, to, you know, someone was trying to get him to say, like, was it, don't, oh, Art, don't you regret that call? Right. And he said, well, I will agree that it was the worst result of a call in there you go. history. Right. So what happened three weeks ago? Oh, so I tell this story and I said, I walked through the Benjamin Morris analysis and then I also included like Mike Lombardi's analysis and I included Bill Belichick's analysis, right? So I'm... You know, I said, look, I'm not a, like, obviously I'm not a football coach, but I'm going to, if Bill Belichick is defending the play, I'm assuming it's probably a good play. So right afterwards, someone came up to talk to me after the talk, and they were arguing with me that I was completely wrong about this. Um, and then I, I said, well, but, you know, but don't you think, like, Bel no, Belichick is wrong too. And then I was like, well, I just sort of want, and they said, we're done. Whoa. We're done. And he just, wa they just walked away. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, that, I, I was, that's not really the point of my talk. But right. right, they need to read your book. We're done. <laughs> they, well, I had just I just given a talk on my book, so apparently it was a bad talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't get to everybody, right? He's yeah. that one percent. He was the yeah. But I felt like that. I mean, there was lots of reasons why that was a great way to start the book. I told you, you know, I've told you that I repeated it. But it, I thought it tied in poker so nicely because I mean, I'm I'm an amateur at the worst level poker player, but I've done it all the time, right? You, you're, the odds are way in your favor to win that hand, and then the last card, you know, river comes up and you lose, that, you didn't do anything wrong. And if you played that hand exactly the same way again, you would be right to do it. But in business, I don't know how many board meetings I've been at where we, we exactly result. We exactly yep. look at, we, I knew we should have never hired that person or never opened up that job record. We should have never opened that, that office. It's like, no, that was still a good reason. It just didn't work out because of these other, these other yeah. factors. So here's the thing. Resulting is a pretty reasonable thing to do if you're playing chess. So if we take uncertainty out of the equation, right? Mm -hmm. So chess doesn't have a whole lot of luck. There's mm -hmm. a little bit, but not a, very much. 
And it also doesn't have this other element, which is hidden information. So meaning, you're, you know, when you're playing chess, you can see your opponent's whole position. And nobody's like rolling dice. And when it comes up, you know, eight, all of a sudden your bishop is off the board. <laughs> so what that means is that if I say to you, tell me a really bad decision you made playing chess this year, going back and looking at a game that you lost in some spectacular fashion is actually very reasonable. Yep. Looking at when the ball was intercepted is really reasonable because that bad result is not likely to be the outcome of luck because there isn't much in the game or because there was information that you just didn't know about. Right. It's probably because you made some terrible decisions in the game. So it's a, it's a relatively reasonable strategy. Are you going to necessarily find the worst decision that you made? Maybe not, but you're going to find some really bad ones. In poker, that's a really unreasonable strategy mm -hmm. because I can lose when I played perfectly well and I can win when I played disastrously because there's luck involved and also there's this hidden information element. And that is much more akin to what life decisions look like. Right. I can run a red light and get through fine. Right. I have done it. Right. I admit it. Right. Does it make it a good decision? I hope not. Yeah. I'm not I'm, I wasn't thinking when I did that safely, oh, I, let me repeat that one. Right. I was like, oh my gosh, I ran a red light. I'm so happy I made it through safely. Right. And I can also run a green light and get in an accident, by the way. I mean, th this is just, you know, now when you get into things that are much more complicated than just whether you're going through an intersection, it gets very, very complicated. So when we treat life's decisions yep. like we're sitting on a chessboard, we really mess up. And one of the ways we mess up, particularly in leadership roles, is that resulting kills innovation. And this is why. Like, think about this as a thought experiment. You're going somewhere with a friend, and you go the usual route. You're like going to somebody's house for dinner or a party, or you're trying to get to the movies or whatever it is. And you go the usual route that you go, mm -hmm. and there happens to be a whole lot of traffic, or there's an accident or something. Nobody's yelling at each other for that. It's just like, ugh, oh, bad luck. There was traffic. But what if we're going together and I say, you know what, John, I know a new route to mm -hmm. go. I learned about a new route. Let's go this route. Yep. And we go, the, the, this is, I'm, we're do, I'm doing some innovation here. And I say, let's try this new way to do it. And the same thing happens. There's a ton of traffic. Now you're cursing me. Right. You're like, ugh, oh, why did you take this new route? But Notice in both cases, it was just this kind of like, okay, well, there was unexpected traffic. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. But it's when you do the expected thing, when you hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, nobody's saying anything. If he had handed that ball off to Marshawn Lynch twice and Marshawn Lynch happened not to get into the game, nobody would have said anything right. about it. They would have right. said, ah, oh, he coached a good game and it didn't work out in the end. And what are you going to do? Yep. It was only because he chose something innovative that was unexpected that he got that horrible treatment. That's the problem with resulting, is it makes people stick with the status quo. Because if you stay with the status quo, you don't get yelled at. You don't get blamed for the decision. You don't get told that you're a horrible decision maker. Right, right. Well, and one of the things you say, I think, and correct me if I misquote you on any of this stuff, is one way to counter that is ask yourself, would I feel differently if the result was different? Right. You know, so don't just, if you feel like you're a resulter, like try to do that where you're, you're asking yeah. yourself, would, would I feel differently? Imagine, it's say, well, is it the Philly special? Like, just right. say, like, okay, well, what if the ball had been caught? How would I have right. thought about that? Right. And you can think about that in any kind of role when you're evaluating other people's decisions, you know? You can say, you could say in that case, well, if we had taken the usual route, would I be so mad at Annie? Right. Like, probably. did she really have control over this accident? Well, probably just people, you know, I'm easy to be mad at. But, yeah. So well, I, what I like that you said in the book, and um, you said it here again, but I want to just highlight it. Life is poker, not chess. And when I, when I read that, I laughed because I've worked with so many people that feel like they're playing chess. 
they feel we like hear it in politics. And, oh, he's paying three dimensional. Ooh, tests. he's two steps ahead, right? Yeah. And what they're thinking is, I'm like, let's say I'm a company and you're my competitor. I'm playing this move, thinking you're going to make that move. And what's silly about that is the rest of the world is so uncertain. So maybe I will do this thinking that Annie's going to do something else, and maybe she'll do that, and maybe she won't. But what I'm discounting is everything else that could impact my decision. Right. So it's not chess. It is poker. No, there is luck. There's a little bit of luck, and we'll get into skill versus luck. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was a really insightful way to look at the world. Yeah, and it, it's actually, poker is actually, so in economics, there's a field in economics called game theory, which has to do with decision-making in multiplayer games under conditions of uncertainty. Lots and lots of Nobel laureates in game theory. Um, depending on how you define game theory, it's between like six and a lot. <laughs> but six is a lot of Nobel laureates. Right. That. At any rate, the, the father of modern game theory is a guy named John von Neumann, um, who was also a lot of other things, including the father of the modern computer. Uh, he ran the Manhattan Project. Uh, and then as his side gig, he, he developed game theory while he was doing... Underachiever. Yes, he was. Um, so he actually, you know, mutually assured destruction is, that's John von Neumann. But people, he got kind of lost in the history of science. Um, who's better known as one of his students who is a Nobel laureate named John Nash, who you might know as the, the, lead, care, uh, the lead person in um, A Beautiful Mind, uh, which was, who was played by Russell Crowe, who won an Academy Award. So um, at any rate, the thing that people don't know about John von Neumann uh, in terms of game theory is that he actually modeled game theory when he was thinking about it at, on a stripped-down version of poker. Mm. So he, he was asked by a colleague, he was at the Institute for Advanced Study, which was where Einstein was, by the way, also, and, um, which is why I think, he got, I think Einstein overshadowed Yeah, right. But anyway, he, he was asked by a colleague, oh, this game theory, it's, it's very interesting. You know, this, he wrote this book, Theory of Games, with Oscar Morgenstern. It's very, very interesting, but why didn't you base it on chess? Mm. So in the West, we think of chess as the most yes. complicated game, and it's the decision-making problem. That's why we say, like, 3D chess. And he said, chess, chess is just a calculation. Mm. Poker is a game. That's a paraphrase. The full quote's in there. It's much more complicated than that, but that's a paraphrase of it. And what he meant by that was that because there's no uncertainty or little uncertainty, there, there isn't this luck as much of a luck element or this hidden information element, mm -hmm. that if you have enough computing power, it's really just a calculation of calculating out what, you know, if I make this move, what are all the possible moves, and then what are all the possible responses to that, and so on and so forth. So yep. that game in that sense is solvable in the same sense that tic-tac-toe is solvable by any 10-year-old. Right. But he said poker's different because of this. There's this luck element, and then the hidden cards make it a game. And so uh, in game theory, sort of the academic definition of a game, you have to have uncertainty. Um, and he was just saying you don't have that in chess, which is why he modeled it on poker. Yeah, and that's why there's right and wrong in chess. And right. And there's still right and wrong in poker, obviously, but less. I, I, yeah, I could go kind of after the fact, right and right. wrong, if you, if you can, you know. If depending on the luck, the, depending yeah, on exactly. how the cards yeah. turn. I'm going to just pull out another quote from the book. One okay. of my favorite quotes, experience can be an effective teacher, but clearly only some students listen to their teachers. So an apt quote for this audience, as well as everyone watching all over the world. Um, but what, what, do, you, do you have any, any, any ways that we can be more mindful? I know the book does talk about a few, but I thought that was a great quote. We're all guilty of it at certain times. And part of it is just the way we interpret that experience, whether we want to rationalize it away or really investigate it. And I think that goes to the heart of what you're, what you're getting out of the book. Yeah, so it, here's why experience is not, experience is necessary for expertise, but it's not sufficient. So the question is, why is that? Well, obviously, it's we know why it's necessary, but why isn't it sufficient? 
So when we think about this resulting problem, like the, the whole problem is that you can have this whole set of probabilities, right? So like if we take Pete Carroll's case, you know, let's just say 40% of the time the Paul's dropped and 59% it's caught and right. then 1% it's intercepted. Well, I guess I have to take that back because there's sometimes it's fumbled and things right, like that. Right. But you have some set of probabilities. The problem is that they all converge on one actual result. So it's not like all of those probabilities play out, right? They all converge on one result. And so here's the problem that we have as learners is that you have this result and we have to work backwards to try to figure out what we're supposed to learn from it. Mm -hmm. So I think the analogy that I give in the, the book is if a patient comes into a doctor's office and they're coughing, there can be all sorts of underlying causes for what, why the patient's coughing, from a neurological disorder to a virus to they've got something caught in their throat to a bacterial infection to cancer to, you know, right? So it's like there's this whole set of things that could be causing that cough, but all the doctor sees is the cough. So the doctor has to work back from this one result, which all of these things converge on, and try to figure out from looking at that result what the underlying cause is. And this is the problem for us, right? So mm -hmm. when we have some sort of outcome in our lives, we have to figure out. So you can take poker. I don't, most hands, I don't see your cards. Right. So I win or lose the hand, and now I have to figure out if I won or lost the hand because of bad luck, mm -hmm. or because I made poor decisions, or some combination of the two, which is usually the answer. And, but all I have is the win or loss. That's all I've got. So that's actually an incredibly hard problem. And so how we field outcomes, how we sort, well, what part of this result, what, what kind of things were because of my decisions and mm -hmm. what were because of luck, yes. that's what determines whether we learn. Because the outcome of your life is determined by only two things, the quality of your decisions and luck. So you better figure out which is which. And then you also have to get really comfortable with the luck element and not obsess about it because you have no control over that part. That just is. And you have to get really obsessed with how do I improve the decision-making part of my life because that's the thing that I have control over. The problem for us is that thinking about that decision-making part of your life is really painful because if you have a bad outcome, right. isn't it a lot nicer to say that that was bad luck? Then we don't have to feel like, then it's not our fault. We don't have to feel like we were wrong. We don't have to feel like somehow we created this outcome for ourselves. And so we have this tendency when we're evaluating our own decisions, yep. which is mostly what we learn from, that when good things happen, we take credit for them and we throw them into the skill bucket. And when bad things happen, we blame them on luck and we throw them into the luck bucket. Now, that, what that means is that there's all these learning opportunities that you're missing, number one, that you've just said that was bad luck because I, I just don't want to say that there was something to learn from it. So it's, it, that's just bad luck. And then there's all these behaviors that you're reinforcing that you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So when you do that pattern, it's like when I get through the red light you know, safely, it's because I'm such a great driver <laughs> through red lights. And so let me just reinforce that behavior. Right. And if I ever get in an accident, it's not my fault. And in fact, here's kind of an interesting statistic. Close to 80% of accident reports are reported as not in a two-car vehicle, like two cars have an accident. Almost 80% of the time, drivers report that as not their fault, as the other driver's fault. Now, obviously, that's completely impossible. Now, here's how pervasive that is. 37% of the time that there's a single car accident, like you ran into a tree or something, right. it's also reported as not the person's fault. It's a tree's fault. <laughs> It's like, the, you know, the pedestrian jumped the road, in front of me, the... like there was, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, so this is a really pervasive problem. It's called self-serving bias. And that's, this is really the reason why 
if we really get down to it, why is it that we don't just automatically become experts when we have lots and lots of experience? It's because we don't necessarily learn from the experience. Right. I, I want to go back a little bit more. You've touched on some of this, but the truth, the truth seeking pod, which when you guys read the book, you'll understand what that means. I'd like to hear a little bit about how that came about um, and any advice you might have on other folks to kind of get their own pod. You touched about on a couple of things there about, you know, the first one of the steps is let's be honest with each other. But the way I remember it in the book was you were about to lament about a hand that you lost. No, I was lamenting. You were, you were <laughs> lamenting, which, again, is what we all do. And a friend just sits there, nods their head and goes, Annie, you're right. Oh, that was that sucks. And the person, was it Eric? Somebody said, stop. Yeah. So we all, look, we, part of self-serving bias is that when things aren't going well, we want to tell our hard luck story. And that's true whether it's a poker hand or like a relationship, yep. you know, job. I was so mistreated, yep. Yep. you know, yeah, in a job, my boss is so crappy. <laughs> um, you know, oh, the one I tell is like my son would come, come back teachers. from school right yeah. with a bad grade this was when he was in like 10th grade and it was always like the teacher doesn't like me it was stuff that they put stuff on the test that wasn't even taught in class yep he graded it so hard you could ask anybody in the class they'll tell you notice none of that not one single thing has to do with his own study habits there <laughs> um but we, and so we tend to do this all the time and what we generally do the way that groups usually work is, so you can think about two different styles of communication within a group. One is a confirmatory style, which is uh, what we default to, which is like, I'm going to tell you my hard luck story, and then you're going to go, yeah, man, my professor I'm with you. mistreats me also, or my boss is mean to me too. Or, right. Right. And so like, you'll listen to my hard luck story, you'll sympathize with me, and then what happens is you get to now tell me... <laughs> the hard luck story or or like I'll tell you some belief I have and you'll be like yeah you're so right I believe that too um so that's how you get like echo chambers and yeah. what happens when you're in a group that has a confirmatory style is these types of biases whether it's biased beliefs or biased ways that you process information um get amplified right so if we're in that type of relationship together we're going to amplify our sort of blaming bad things on luck with each other and we're going to make it a lot worse because we're going to essentially act as clones so that our biases end up on steroids. Yep. What we wanted to foster instead is an exploratory style, which is instead of um, a style of thought that's sort of guiding you toward believing that your prior beliefs are all right, and that we're both really smart, and that all bad things are because of luck, and all good things are because we're so great, mm -hmm. um, and everything we believe is true. So that would be a confirmatory style. Instead, we're trying to develop the most accurate model of the world. So we want our beliefs to truth be truth-seeking. Truth-seeking. We want. So what I say is, are you reasoning to be right, or are you reasoning to be accurate? Right. Because what, what? If you think about it, why would I sort of default to luck? Because you know, oh, it didn't turn out because of luck. Well, because then I'm not wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So it's that reasoning to be right causes you to start blaming things on luck when they don't turn out. Instead, if I say no, what I want to do is have the most accurate representation of the objective truth. Because at the base of any decision that I make are my beliefs, right? Yep. So the more accurate my beliefs are, the better my decision-making is going to be. So what yep. I'll, I'm willing to do is do, I'm going to take some short-term pain and this feeling maybe that maybe I'm not right because I feel like that's going to cause me to create a more accurate model of the world. And we're going to agree to do this together. So how did this happen to me? Because I, I was not naturally like this. Well, nobody, so, nobody is. No. And I'm still not, by the way. I still complain about bad luck all the time. Let me just say that. I'm just a, I'm a little bit better at it. And the good news for you guys is like a tiny bit better has huge differences in your outcomes. That's the good news. Because I still do it all the time. I just do it less. Okay, so uh, 
I go up to Eric Seidel when I first started playing poker. And you know, this is what poker players do. And I go, I'm like, oh, I can't believe how unlucky I got. This guy was so bad. He was such, so terrible. And he had such a bad hand. And I had such a good hand. And right, of course, I played right. like I'm like the Einstein of poker. <laughs> and then I, you know, I had aces and I lost, whatever. And he, he literally like said, why, I don't, why, I don't want to hear this. Like, Annie, I like you just fine, but like, be quiet, shut up. Like, this is, why are you telling me this? He said, I've lost with aces too. I've heard every hard luck story there is. I just, I don't want to hear it. Now, he said to me though, if you have a question, mm. do you have a question about this hand? If you have a question, I'll listen to it. But honestly, like, I just, I don't care to hear about how you had bad luck. There's nothing to learn from it. If it was really bad luck, you had no control over the outcome anyway. So I just don't care. Right. Don't get in my emotional head like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, except what an amazing thing he did for me. Because he really defined for me what the rules of engagement with him were, right? That I needed to be trying to figure out how to have this exploratory conversation with him. So now when I came to him to talk to him about poker, and trust me, I wanted his approval, which is great, because that's like the best you know, reinforcement there is, is the social approval of people that you respect and admire. Mm -hmm. So I respected and admired him and I wanted his approval. So I knew if I, if I wanted to impress Eric Seidel, I needed to ask him a question about a hand. So first of all, that was great when I was talking to him because if I'm gonna take up my time with Eric Seidel, an expert, by just telling him about bad luck, I'm not gonna become an expert myself. I'm using my, my time with him in a very, uh, inefficient way mm -hmm. because I'm not going to learn anything about how to play better by just telling him how unlucky yeah, I am. You're wasting his time too. I'm wasting his time, but in particular, I, look, we all care about ourselves a lot. I'm wasting <laughs> my time, right? So he told, he stopped me from wasting my time right. in trying to protect his own time. <laughs> he stopped me from wasting my time. So now when I talk to him, I'm actually going to be learning something about poker. That's really great. But here's where it's, here's where it's so wonderful is that because I knew I was going to be accountable to him, in terms of the way that I spoke to him. What happened to me when I was sitting at a poker table? I was looking for things to talk to him about. Mm. So I was trying to find places where I was making mistakes or where I had questions or where, where I was unsure of how I played because I wanted material to be able to go and talk to this person whose respect that I wanted, you know, to talk to this person who I wanted to learn from, who I wanted to engage with me like I was his peer. Mm -hmm. And it, so it changed the way I was processing information in the moment when I was away from him. And so you can imagine that that just like amplifies the learning. So now I'm learning by actually working through the hands with him, but it's actually causing me to process information out on my own in a completely different way and view the game in a different way. Mm -hmm. And here's the really wonderful thing about it is that the reason why we kind of offload stuff to luck in the first place is because we want to feel good about ourselves, right? Like we, we don't want to feel wrong. But the engagement that I, gave, that I knew I was going to get from him was its own reward in itself. So I didn't have to give up feeling good about myself. Mm -hmm. I just felt good about a different thing. So what Eric did was change the rules of the game for me. The goal was now different. The goal wasn't just to sort of offload the bad feeling. The goal was to find the most creative ways that I had completely screwed up playing so that I could go and tell him those so that he would like talk to me. And I felt really good about doing that because he reinforced all of that for me and so did the other people in my group. And that's why having a group that, that has this element. So what, this is what he did. He said, I'm gonna hold you accountable. You need to only think, be thinking about accuracy, right? We're gonna talk about accuracy not being right. 
and you're going to have to listen to my opinion, which might disagree with you, right? So I have to, you have to be willing to listen to another perspective and be open-minded to right. it. Those were the three things yep. he told me. Yep. And if you can wrap those into your interactions with people as you're trying to work through decisions, you will really do well in life. I, I know you didn't write the book for this purpose, but I found it very helpful. I have a friend that I, did, I disagree politically with, and, um, but we've stayed friends. We've stayed good friends. That's unusual. I know. It is. Good on you. And I, and I like that you say you give us a couple of coping skills, and I know it's in the context of business, because in a business environment, if I think we should go into China and you think we shouldn't, I, I need to have skills to, to, to talk to you about it without you getting mad at me. So you say things like, um, first off, ask yourself, so if, when somebody says they're certain, like, are you certain about that? I like when you say, well, ask them, or gently, appropriately, how certain are you on a scale of 1 to 10? And get them to sort of say, well, maybe I'm a 6 on that. Oh, interesting. You're not a 10. You're not a 0. Right. And I also like that you say, first off, express uncertainty yourself. Start with saying, you know, I'm not certain about that either. Am I certain he's 3 or 4 or 5 or whatever? And then lead with assent, which you just said. Like, lead with something positive and, and, the, and something you do agree on. You know, right. We both agree that China's an interesting market. And right. Let's talk about it more. I agree. So let's explore that. Yeah. And, then obtain, and then seek to obtain the truth, which you've also outlined as, a, as an important thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that you were touching upon, um, you wrote an article recently about our political tribes and how... I, those those graphs were startling to me, where the the way Republicans and Democrats change their opinion on the FBI just based on what 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 a Republican leader said about the FBI or what a Democratic leader said about the FBI. I don't know if the, if you want to riff on that, sure. but I, I felt like this book it's kind of interesting. It can help you make great business decisions, but but as you said in the beginning, the promise of the book was it's going to help you make personal choices better as well. Yeah, and I found that to be true in that regard for sure. So. I think you've heard me talk, you know, say the word identity a lot. So we can think about the, the work of, of, for example, Dan Cahan at Yale. He's part of the Cultural Cognition Project. Um, a lot of this problem in Con, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, when, when you're thinking about like heuristics and biases, a lot of it has to do with that we reason in a way to protect our identity. Yep. So we want to have this positive self-narrative of our lives, and we want to generally think that we're right and that we're good actors and we're valuable and all these things. And so we'll reason about information that comes in in order to protect our identity. Um, and that can actually cause a lot of problems. For example, there's this problem called motivated reasoning, which is that uh, if there's some piece of information that comes in that uh, agrees with you, you're like, yeah, great. Totally. Totally. Um, we tend to ignore information that disagrees with us, but even when we're confronted with it, when I say, look, this disagrees with you, read this scientific article yep. that literally yep. says the opposite of your belief, right. you will work really hard Question to discredit it. Question the source. It. Or... Right. So, so you'll talk about you know, the end wasn't big enough, or they didn't run the right statistics, or they p-hacked, or they, you know, it's just like you'll come up with every reason why it's not a valuable study. So... Uh, so Dan Kahan actually did a really interesting study where he gave people um, data tables that were supposed to be about the effectiveness of skin cream. That was great. And so he, he, you know, people, I mean, I don't have a lot of emotional attachment to skin cream, so, and most people don't. So the, the, this is an unemotional topic. And so he just looked at, he divided people in two groups, people who were very good at interpreting the data and people who were not so, so great at interpreting the data. So you have a group of people who are very highly numerate and a group of people who are not so numerate. Great. So he's got them divided up. So we can think of them as like statistically smart to statistically not so smart. That doesn't mean they're not smart in other ways, just not statistically so smart. 
So now he literally takes the exact same data and he makes it about gun control. And it's the relationship between gun control and crime. Does crime go down or up with gun control measures? And he's asked the people what their prior is, meaning do they believe that um, gun control decreases crime or that having more guns decreases crime. Okay, so he know, and this is obviously an incredibly polarizing issue. Mm -hmm. Now he gives them the exact, literally the exact same data. And what happens is what you'd expect, which is motivated reasoning, which is now they take the data and they, they actually reason about it to uh, support their prior belief. So the, the data in some ways becomes irrelevant. So they slice and dice the data now, not in what the data is actually saying, but in a way that supports their prior belief. So if they believe that gun control reduces crime, they look at this exact same data that they were perfectly good at interpreting before, mm -hmm. and now they say it supports that gun control reduces crime, even when it supports the opposite. Right. right? And this is made up data. That, by the way, this is totally made up data. And if they believe that more guns reduce crime, they do, they, then they reason about the data that way. Okay. So. What's really interesting about it is that the more, you might think that the people who are more numerate, the ones that were better with the skin cream data, would do that less, but they actually do it more. So being smart makes it worse. And being smart makes you dumb. And you can think about why that is, right? Because you can tell a better story. With, I mean, statistics, you know, data doesn't exist. In a, like, you, you need a person to interpret the data. And right. if someone's smarter, they can interpret that data to support their prior belief better. Right? Okay, so that's motivated reasoning. Now, what you notice there is that nobody has much of an identity about skin cream. Mm -hmm. And so when it's not about your identity, you're pretty good with the numbers. But people do, you know, how you feel about gun control is a big part of your identity. It divides us into tribes, right? People who think there should be less guns and people who think there should be more guns. I mean, that's a big tribal thing. Yep. And so what happens then is that now you protect your identity with the way that you reason about the data. Now, where this article comes in, uh, there was a great paper by Jay um, Van Bavel, who's from NYU, and Andrea Pereira out of his lab, where he was talking about, okay, so here's the question that you want to ask. Is, do our, is the ideology, our ideology that causes us to initially sort into political tribes, mm -hmm. the identity that we protect, or is our tribal identification superseding the ideology that originally causes us to identify? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say that you were somebody who, for example, really believed in um, free trade, and you looked at the two, you know, you're trying to sort yourself into a political tribe. You're, are you gonna be a Republican or a Democrat? And you really believe your ideology says free trade is a really good thing. Well, there was a time when that would cause you to sort into being a Republican. Right. Right? Okay. So now you've sorted yourself into being a Republican. So now the question is, we know what your underlying ideology was. You believe that free trade is good for the country. That was actually the initial reason why you sorted as being a Republican. So now what you have to ask yourself is, if your tribe, if the Republicans now switch their position on free trade, do you leave the Republican tribe right. or do you change your position on trade? And it's very strong evidence that you change your position on trade because you're trying to protect your identity with your tribe. So what Jay Van Bevel, Van Bevel talks about is that tribes give us a few things. One is like differentiation. We feel like we're different than other people, right? So it causes me to be different from you. Um, number one, belongingness, that we feel like we belong to something. Um, 
it gives us a understanding about moral compass, like mm -hmm. how do we reason around morality, mm -hmm. um, which we need a little help with because that's sort of in this place of, you know, it's not clear what's right or wrong necessarily. Um, but, but the big thing it gives us is essentially, we look to tribes for um, what would be called like epistemic certainty, which is just knowledge. Like what am I supposed to believe and not believe? What is true and what isn't true? And we look to the tribe to tell us that. So here what we have is our initial things caused us to sort into the tribe, but now the tribe is conflicting with something and so we say, oh, well they must know. So I'm gonna switch mm -hmm. what I believe in order to stay in the tribe. Um, and you can see that a lot in what's happening with politics it right now. It explains a lot of things. Um, and it's the reason why there's actually, um, you know, this rhetorical thing that everybody keeps doing, which is uh, if they're trying to get somebody to see something that, say, they think is irrational about Trump, they'll say, well, you know, imagine if Obama did it. Or vice versa, if they're trying to get you to see something that's, you know, you're feeling in an irrational way poorly about Trump, they'll say, imagine if Obama did it. Okay, so they're trying to get you to imagine that. That's silly. Because obviously, you know, for a Republican, if a Democrat did it, then they're going to change their... Right. We know that because it's the, the tribe is, is superseding in terms of identity. And that's a really big problem. So, you know, that's kind of bad news. But So the idea would be to try to get people to identify as something that supersedes the tribe, like American. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? And if we could do that, if we could get people, instead of identifying as a Republican or a Democrat, to say, no, my superseding identity is American or human being, uh, human being who wants the best for, um, then maybe we could get people to reason more rationally about it. When are you running for office? Never. <laughs> the answer to that is literally never. never. That was, you're certain about that? Uh, that one. One to ten. No, I, I actually am not, I can't. 100% be certain about literally anything, I can get close to certainty. So like here's something I'm very close to certainty on, the earth is round. Um, why I am not, I mean rounded, right? Like it, as round as a thing can be. Um, the reason why I'm not 100% certain is I suppose there is some very small probability we're in the matrix and there is no <laughs> earth. Right, so I can't ever be 100% certain, but I'm, I'm approaching the limit of certainty on I am never running for Good. office. All right, well, this will be shown. When you're up there running for office, somebody's going to yeah, Someone's going to show this. Look, Andy said. And I'm going to say, but I was approaching the limit of certainty. You were close. Yeah, that's there. right. You left the matrix open. I did, I did. I left the word in the matrix. So this may not be a fair question because you're in the middle of this book tour. I don't know if you like that lead in. You're in the middle of the book tour. You're thinking about this book constantly. You're asked about the book constantly, but I know your wheels are always turning. Have you thought about what's next? What, are there things you're thinking about that, you're, that you'd like to write about? If you don't feel like sharing them on this no, forum, we can. I'm happy to share them. So my, my answer is I, I'm not sure what's next. I mean, there are some days when I'm like, boy, I'd really just like to be doing a lot more yoga. <laughs> no, for real. I did yoga this morning. I believe you. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, th there are definitely days where, where I sort of think, well, you know, it's like I've got, I have four children and two steps. I've only got two left at home. My second to my youngest is actually going off to BU next year. Right. Yay, Lucy. Yeah. Um, and then my youngest is only at home for two more years. And there are times when I think I should, you know, just step back and take some time. I mean, I spend a lot of time with him, but I'm like, oh, I should relish this. Mm -hmm. And then also I'd really like to do more yoga. <laughs> and Do yoga with him. Tennis. And yeah. So, um, but then I also realized that after a week I would, you know, go crazy. Um, just only because I know what I've done in the past. Right. <laughs> and I seem right. to really like to be moving. So I don't think that that's probably going to happen. But there are moments when I think about that. So what, what I kind of 
I'm sitting on the table with this, you know, I mean, I've, I've got the nonprofits that I'm definitely going to continue with. So there's three nonprofits that I'm very heavily involved with. One, of course, that I founded. Um, I'm thinking about two things and maybe doing both. I'm not sure. Thinking about maybe going back and finishing my PhD. Ah, doctor. Um, yeah, right? Like, so I'm pretty deep into conversations about that secretly. Nice, the nice. Top secret. Don't top tell secret. anybody. <laughs> Keep it quiet. So I don't know. So if, if you had to ask me right now, I would say I'm like, you know, 76% to do that. So I'm not sure. Would you then teach? Would you use that to teach? I don't know. Like, I, I think, honestly, there, there are some questions that I have that I'd really like to answer that mm. are not answered in the literature at the moment. Nice. And so I'd like to go and do some experiments. So more truth seeking for you. So I don't know, but I don't know, like I'm not sure. So I'm not sure about that. And then I'm also thinking maybe, you know, I really love the experience of writing this book and I think I have some, another, I, I think I have another book, um, which is more about like in the emotional space and in innovation space, which gets touched on in this book, particularly mm -hmm. in chapter six. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of like to do that too. So I, you know, so yoga writing. Well, yoga is definitely answering and questions I never heard, been answered. Yeah, right. So, so the two things that are really I'm I'm sort of like trying to figure out right now is the right. You know, do I do I want to write? I I think it's I think it's two more books that I'm thinking about. Oh. So I'm not sure. Um, do I want to do that? Do I want to do the PhD? Could I do those both at the same time? Mm -hmm. Do I want to do neither? There isn't a bad decision here. Like, I'm just right. trying to work through it, right. given what I know. Absolutely. Um, and try to make a prediction about the future. But, you know, I'm... So I'm, you're using the book in your own life. <laughs> well, I always... I've, I, I live the book. Right. I, I really do talk this way. Like, I, you know, when, when I... Like, here's... So there's all sorts of ways that you can wrap uncertainty in the way that you speak. And it's a really good thing to do. Because if I wrap uncertainty into the way that I speak to you, a, a few good things happen. One is it, it, it actually invites you to share information with me because I've taken a non-defensive stance. I've, I've signaled open-mindedness because I said, oh, like I'm, I'm, maybe I'm 76% to go do this right. PhD. What that means is I'm saying, help me. Like it's literally a, a big flat, like help me, please. Um, but the other thing is that I also, like if I'm, if I'm expressing a belief to you, um, and I put a percentage around it. I haven't infected you with the belief. I've signaled to you that the belief is in progress still. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if I were to say, uh, if I were to express some sort of belief about how to handle school shootings, and I said, well, I think this policy, you know, I'm sort of leaning toward this policy. I'm like, you know, 67% on it. Notice we're, we're, no, we're probably not going to have an argument from that where you're going to yell at me and tell me that I'm stupid. Right. You're probably just going to share your information with me. So it's a really wonderful way to do it. So there's different ways that you can express yourself that way. One is you can put percentage on it, percentages on it, which is just a guess, right? There's no right answer. It's just your best guess of what the probability is. Um, that, I do that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, another th way you can do it is like, I, I, I think that this, this is, I, I read this really interesting article um, that had this particular position on gun control, but it was only one article, mm -hmm. and it was this is where I saw it. So I, I just you know just take it for what it's worth because I read it in this one article, but it seemed like a really good opinion that was worth exploring. Now notice here I haven't put a percentage on it, but I've signaled a lot of uncertainty, and so I haven't infected you with my belief. Right, you're not going to walk away believing that thing. We're we're all going to agree that this is really under construction yep. and now hopefully you're going to tell me some of the articles that you've read or maybe opinions that disagreed with the opinion piece that I read or whatever it's like so I've op so that's another way to do it another thing is I could give a range 
So I could say, um, I'm going to get this paper into you, but it's going to be sometime between Thursday and Sunday. So I just, I, I put a range on it, which also is a way to signal uncertainty. I could say, um, I think Elvis died sometime between like 40 and 47. You know, so I'm, I'm, and, and obviously the wider the range, the more uncertainty I'm telling you, the narrower the range, the less uncertainty I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you, like, for example, when I was working with my editor on this book, I would say, like, I'm going to have chapter two to you um, on, like, December 15th, which I'm, like, 72% on, but I'm, like, 95% sure you'll have it by December 18th, right? So I, I'm sort of, now that's a combination. I've given them a range with percentages. But yep. it really helps set expectations. It stops confrontation. It, it asks, now she can say, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. What do you need in order to raise mm -hmm. the percentage? Those kinds of things. And this is just the way that I talk. Um, and it comes from having played poker. So um, I really highly recommend trying to wrap uncertainty in the way that you express yourself to other people. I think you live a much happier life that way. Um, and you know what? You can't be wrong if you didn't say you were right in the right. first place. That's right. the really beautiful thing. It's like if I say that I was 72% on something and it, then it doesn't work out, yeah. you can't tell me I was wrong. Because right. I'm like, no, I said 28% of the time it was a ridiculous idea. <laughs> so... You know, then I'm just not wrong. So that's, right. that's that's a nice way to live. Like you, you know, then it's hard to be wrong if you didn't say you were right. Well, this is a wonderful book. I really appreciate you coming out and talking to us, Annie. Thank well, you so thank much. you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.